Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Caroline. And I'm Kristen. Kristen, I wanted to talk about women and financial literacy today because recently my friend was telling me uh, kind of an unfortunate story about her mother-in-law who was divorced recently and after the divorce was left in kind of a precarious financial situation. She and her husband had gotten married very young and she had actually never worked uh, before or during their marriage. You know, she was completely supported by her husband and once their marriage fell apart, she was sort of left out in the cold, like, you know, not only did she not know how to pull a credit report, but she needed to build credit. She needed to get credit cards, build these accounts up. And so I wanted to look into why she's not the only one who has been a victim of of financial illiteracy, why this seems to be something that a lot of women suffer from, not just during divorce, but during marriage, too, it seems like women lag behind men in financial literacy. Yeah. And no matter your marital status, I mean, the fact of the matter is looking into financial literacy is so important for women for, you know, the reasons that often come up the most is the fact that women live on average five years longer than men. And on top of that, we're earning less due to gender wage gaps. So we have less money to work with and we're more likely to take breaks from the workplace to care for children or elderly parents. So we got a lot of stuff going on. And while we're juggling all of these things and trying to make ends meet and trying to, you know, care for different people, financial literacy sometimes slips through the cracks. And as we'll talk about more, there is a socialization factor that goes into this gender gap as well. Yeah, according to a Rand American Life Panel study, financial literacy is pretty widespread. And many women are unfamiliar with even the most basic economic concepts needed to make saving and investment decisions. And I know, I mean, I have a retirement account. Um, do I understand fully the investments that I am making? No, my father helped me invest. I can see that I am part of the problem. Yeah, as I was reading all of these articles for this episode, it was a startling reminder to me that I need to get my financial literacy in check because I'm, I'm similar to you. I have, I have my things set up, but I'm not exactly invested in my investments. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, there was a 2007 study out of Ohio State University and Iowa State University that speaks to a lot of this. And it found that women are less socialized in money matters and find investment decisions stressful, difficult, and time consuming compared to guys. But the funny thing about it is a lot of studies will say that even though we might approach it with more fear and trepidation, there are, you know, there's some evidence that we might be naturally better investors because we are a little bit more cautious with our money compared to men. Hmm. Um, and often for women, it takes a life event like marriage, divorce, death, obviously a death of someone else, not, <laughs> not your own, to prompt women to save and invest. Whereas men are more likely to start doing this gradually. Yeah. Well, so what's up with the gap? I I wanted to understand why women lag behind. And according to Rand, 
the gap is not explained by the differences between men and women necessarily, but more the ways in which literacy are produced. So, like Kristen said, how men go about gradually gathering that information, but also the social aspect of how they're kind of expected to. So Rand looked into that and found that the things that really affect the gap are education, income, and current and past marital status. These coefficients reduced the gap by 25%. So looking at education in particular, they found that financial decision-making within couples is sensitive to the relative education levels of spouses for both women and men. And they found that both men and women are responsible for more financial activities within the couple as their education increases relative to their partner. So, but if you look at education in absolute terms, uh, that relationship changes a little bit much because men will benefit from education more than women will. In other words, as men become more and more educated, they take on more and more financial responsibility. But the same is not necessarily the case for women in those absolute terms. But once you get into uh, couple relationships, obviously like heterosexual couple relationships, then that uh, relative relationship starts where um, the more, if you are, say, a woman married to a man, then the more education that you get, usually, relative to the guy, will increase your financial responsibility. So it's, I mean, already, (laughs) it's a little bit of a tangled uh, relationship there. Right. And even female college graduates struggle. So, I mean, we we found out just a second ago that the more educated you are, man or woman, the better you are financially. However, uh, Time magazine in June 2012 had an article that found that, yeah, college grads do struggle. Uh, Manaz Madavi, who's the director of Smith College's Center for Women and Financial Independence, a very specific center, found that the mean financial literacy test score for women with just a bachelor's degree is only 47 percent. Now, women with a master's degree in business scored very well, as you might imagine. But at all other levels of scholastic achievement, the scores were failing. Yeah, we're talking women with PhDs who still couldn't answer, you know, basic questions about compound interests and stuff like that. Right. Uh, they did find that the scores of financial literacy rose with age and household income, but the median score peaked at just 57% for college-educated women in their 60s. Yeah, and uh, I have a feeling that the rising scores with age and household income might be related to marital status because a lot of this kind of uh, financial data will show that married women will be significantly more financially literate than unmarried women and married men. So it's like once we, you know, like I said, once a a life event prompts us to start really taking a good look at at what's going on and the fact that women tend to be more in control of household Mm -hmm. finances, then we're like, oh, but, you know, with the rising age of marriage, we're waiting longer to get married. And uh, so... Even as single women like ourselves, Caroline, you pay attention. Like, I would think, just, you know, if I had not read any of this stuff, I would think that, you know, single women would be very well educated just from having to take care of everything for themselves. But I guess I did give myself away at the top of the podcast when I said that my daddy made my 401k investments. Hey, but at least you've got those 401k investments, Caroline. At least I do. I can retire at least by like 70 or something. So um, a 2008 study found that fewer than 20% 
of middle-aged, college-educated women were able to answer a basic compound interest question versus, versus 35% of college-educated men of the same age. So that ties into that whole, like, age-education gap. Right. And just to continue hammering home the evidence of this financial literacy gender gap, going back to that RAND report that you mentioned, Caroline, uh, women performed almost... 0.7 standard deviations lower than men on their financial literacy index. And, oh, 0.7 standard deviations. Oh, what, what, what does that mean? Well, basically, it's a, that's the variation from the average. And 0.7 is a highly significant difference. In other words, in layman's terms, women were not doing too great. Yeah, and where we really lag is in financial planning. This is Financial Finesse's 2012 Gender Gap in Financial Literacy Report. It found that just 43% of women have an emergency fund versus 63% of men. 52% of women are comfortable with their non-mortgage debt versus 71% of men. And only 37% of women have assessed their risk tolerance and are aware of their investment strategy versus 57% of men. For instance, at my last job, I enrolled in the retirement account but never bothered to go back in and look at my risk assessment. And I was actually having a very conservative investment thingy, whatever you call it. I'm illustrating my illiteracy right now. And my, my manager kept saying, like, emailing me, like, hey, you know, you need, you're young. You have a lot of working years ahead of you. You need to go in there and make it more risky. Less conservative. And I was like, I don't know. My heart rate is going up right now. <laughs> I have never assessed my own risk. Oh, well, I need to stop podcasting right now and go log into my all, all of my accounts. Yeah. And go, going uh, further in this, just 25 percent of women rebalance their investment accounts to keep their asset allocation on track compared to 49 percent. Of men, I'm failing. I, I think Matt would have a like a financial literacy literacy score at this point of like negative two. Yeah. Well, my luckily my dad, I mean, kind of tells me what's happening when he helps me. You know, when I when I start a new job and I've I've enrolled in retirement accounts, he kind of explains like, no, you want to do this because you're young, or no, you don't want to do this because this is bad over here, but. But see, okay, but let's take a minute though and talk about that issue of like you you going to your father specifically for financial advice. Right. I know your mom is a very savvy gal as well, but you know the fact that we and I, I'm the same way. Usually, if I have money matters, mm-hmm. um, I'll talk to my dad before I talk to my mom, and. It's uh, it, it does tie into maybe this like bigger issue of why maybe we're in a generational shift from, you know, men just being assumed to be the breadwinners mm-hmm. and therefore we kind of knee jerk assume that they'll take care of all all those funny n- money numbers and such. Well, for me, for me personally, I mean, my father is is so good with money and investments. He's he's a genius when it comes to that stuff, whereas my mother does things like on a trip to Germany or Italy, uh, maybe forget how euros convert to dollars and vice versa and walk into a store and accidentally buy a purse that's a squillion dollars because she doesn't understand the conversion rates. 
So for me personally, my father would probably be a wiser option to go to for financial advice. But don't you think, though, that the concept of the breadwinner, and I do think that this ties into kind of the, the legacy of female financial illiteracy, is that the breadwinner concept is more of a, uh, we associate it more with men. It's more of a male oh, concept. for sure. And it always has been, basically. I yeah. mean, since, especially since the Industrial Revolution. Yeah, well, that's right, because up until industrialization, this idea of being the breadwinner wasn't in existence because everybody was having to pitch in to even make the bread. Literally and figuratively. Exactly. Someone was out in the field. The other person was maybe inside the home milling the wheat. wheat. I'm, I'm testing my knowledge of how bread works. <laughs> and it, it wasn't really thought about, you know. But then once industrialization happens, men scoot out and take to the factories and such, and then we have this major division of labor. And sociologist Jesse Bernard says that in the 1830s, breadwinning becomes a distinctively male responsibility in the United States. Yeah, um, in Who Supports the Family, Gender and Breadwinning in Dual Earner Marriages, they found that men, you know, went to work in factories, and women's work was defined as housework and child care. The idea of breadwinner was born with the special male responsibility then of providing that income, not necessarily going out into the fields and milking the cow and making your income that way, but actually leaving the home, going and making that cash money while your wife stayed at home and took care of the kids. Which, you know, even though that you're not getting paid necessarily for taking care of the kids, you know, that's it's still a very valuable and important form of work for anyone who's had to pay for daycare. But Jean Potichek, who is an associate professor of sociology and coordinator of women's studies at Gettysburg College, was inspired by her students to look into students' expectations for marriage, uh, like essentially wanting to find out more about why, based on this research that her students had done, why male students were like, yeah, it would be totally fine if my wife didn't want to work for a little while. Whereas for female students, overwhelmingly, they were like, ah, no, my husband's going to be working. Right, yeah, 80% of the women who responded in this student-run survey said, no, the, the husband is going to keep working after we get married. And both men and women that uh, her Podichek students looked at assumed that the husband would continue to bear the breadwinner's responsibilities after marriage. So this just jibes with other attitude surveys that have shown that men and women both generally attribute greater responsibility of the fam- family income to men. And it makes total sense because, oh, well, you know, we would assume that at some point, you know, a wife's going to take a little bit of an off-ramp for baby having and that's you know and that's totally fine but today with so many dual earner households and with more and more women making actually more money than their spouses and we are speaking in very heteronormative terms still the idea that that men are should be expected to be in control of the finances because they're making more isn't really jiving with reality well also in in a lot of the articles we read uh it was mentioned that even when women are making a lot of money in the relationship, men are still sort of seen as the breadwinner. They're still sort of seen as the one who's in control of finances. Right. But speaking of women making more, an article in USA Today in March of this year found that more wives are earning more than their husbands, but there's a twist. 
and I'll get to it. So an analysis of census data from the American Community Survey found that wives and dual earner couples are contributing a greater share of the couple's total earnings, 40 percent in 2011 versus 38 percent in 2006. Wives are also earning a greater share of income, increased from 13 percent to 16 percent. But the twist, which I promised you was that maybe they're not necessarily. Maybe this is not in absolute terms. Some of this has to do with men losing their jobs or getting less well-paying jobs, not necessarily that women are making more money. Yeah, and I mean, I I do want to emphasize, too, that the point of all this is not some kind of race for women to make more money than men. You know, that's that's not the, the moral of the story. The moral of the story is, you know, that it's important for everybody to have some financial know-how to, you know, take care of themselves, take care of their households and, you know, hopefully have a a safe and secure future. Um, And more women, the thing is, more women are taking control of their finances. It's not all bad news, even though if you just search around for information on just just Google, for instance, women financial illiteracy, and you will have a wealth of headlines to confirm the gap. But um, there is some good news. This is coming out of Virginia Tech from February 2012, which found that women now hold 60% of all personal wealth. What, what? And 51% of all stocks in the U.S. But I wonder, though, with the management of that personal wealth, mm-hmm. who's actually moving that money around? Um, and at home, not surprisingly, 90% of women control the family's purse strings, and women over 50 have a combined net worth of $19 trillion. So we we have access to a ton of money. Right. And it's that control of the family's purse strings. And, you know, we've mentioned before in the podcast that women are the, you know, the purchasers in the home typically. But it's that control of the family's purse strings, the woman being the quote unquote, you know, purchaser for the family that accountant Richard Barrington says is why mothers should exert more control over family finances. He says that, you know, if we know so much about where our money is going, how it's budgeted, then we should be able to have more of a say. It should be a partnership, not so much just maybe the husband's controlling it. And he cites a moneyrates.com poll that found that in households where financial decision-making wasn't split 50-50 between husband and wives, the husband assumes control more than two-thirds of the time, despite the fact, he says, that 84% of the women surveyed felt they were equally or better qualified to handle these decisions. Yeah, I mean, this whole thing... uh kind of splits down to a difference between women being socialized to spend and men being socialized to save. Mm-hmm. And whereas women need to learn more about that savings bit, men need to learn more about the spending bit because they do tend to make you know larger and uh, riskier kinds of purchases or investments. So tying in with this, a January 2013 Daily Worth survey found a disconnect between women's view of themselves as the financial decision makers and the holder of the purse strings and their lack of financial confidence. So, you know, we mentioned that 90 percent of women uh, control the purse strings and 90 percent of women in this Daily Worth survey identify themselves as the chief bill payer. Seventy six percent say they're the primary retirement planner. But despite all this, 60 percent admit their investing and planning skills are below average and less than half actively seek out financial resources for assistance. So while a lot of women are making these decisions and controlling some finances here and there, they're not really feeling good about it. 
And here's where the real kicker comes in, because we've been talking a lot about women in marriage, letting husbands take care of the checkbooks. And we can go ahead and just go gender neutral at this point, just saying, like, if you're in a couple and you are relying on one person, one of the, the people to control everything, then if Splitsville happens, you're going to be up a creek. Without any money. There is so much that happens in a divorce. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Like, I know I sound like totally naive right now, but this there is there are reasons to stay married. Exactly. <laughs> well, and your and your friend's mother-in-law that you talked about at the top of the podcast is the worst case scenario right. for all of this, where you don't have a work history, you don't have credit, you don't have any kind of financial know-how whatsoever. And depending on the kind of divorce and the state that you're in, you can be left with absolutely nothing. And there are also situations where one spouse will get real mean mm-hmm. and clean out joint checking accounts, run up credit cards, all sorts of stuff can happen. Not to be alarmist or anything. No, but Jeff Landers over at Forbes, who covers a lot of financial advice for divorcing women, says, yeah, maybe you should keep a secret fund if you're, if you're a woman in a marriage. He says, you know, having money that your husband doesn't know about can be emotionally and financially empowering. He can't clear it out. He can't control how the funds are used. But this is a big but. Keeping secrets in your marriage can be a problem. It can erode trust, but it can also be a legal problem because you could be accused of hiding assets and you may be charged with dissipation of marital assets if you're using that secret fund to go on vacations, to buy expensive jewelry and dinner and, oh, I don't know, fund an affair or something. Yeah, to me, the much sounder advice is let's start educating ourselves about our finances and, and have everything, you know, solid when we enter into perhaps one of these legal unions with someone else so that we don't have to keep a secret fund. That would, uh, to me, if you're going into a marriage with a secret bank account, right? you might not... You might, you might want to think twice about that marriage. I mean, you should absolutely have discussions with your partner about, you know, are we going to have a joint account? Are we going to have separate accounts? Are we going to have a joint account and some separate accounts? Um, because there is, you know, I think there's something to be said for financial independence and being prepared for the worst. Um, but, yeah, keeping a secret fund... That that can get people into a lot of trouble. And he even um, encourages people to women, women, really, to keep an eye out in case your husband has a secret account that he just doesn't want to give you any money in the divorce. So it's okay if you keep the secret account. But right. if your partner has a secret account, not okay. But also, though, going, though, even more into the worst case scenario, too, let's say your your partner dies and um, women are getting better with estate planning, but it's still not where it needs to be uh, because the fact of the matter is nine out of ten women will end up at some point being the sole person responsible for their finances because far more women end up widowed compared to men because of the whole thing where we tend to live longer and marry older guys. (laughs) Yeah. And so this is another reason why not just in terms of say your retirement planning or savings account or whatever else kind of assets you might have. You also need to look into estate planning. That's something that personal finance advisors will strongly urge women to do. Yeah, because if you are left alone, 
after your husband passes, it's going to be up to you to decide what happens to all those assets after you kick the bucket. Right. And uh, Forbes warned that, quote, the lingering tradition of paternalistic tools and techniques such as locking up inheritances and trust for widows who presumably can't even balance a checkbook can leave women in the poorhouse. This is such a depressing topic. Yeah, but I think the moral of the story that we're trying to get to really is that the smarter you are about your finances, the more you'll be protected. And I don't mean to joke, but the financial knowledge comes especially in handy if you are very wealthy. Um, a Spectrum Group survey in July 2012 found that wealthy women are even wealthier after divorce. They found that 62% of divorced women with at least $1 million in net worth say they're better off financially since their divorce. And this is a sharp difference from your quote-unquote average divorced women who are twice as likely to live in poverty as recently divorced men are. They found that high levels of wealth and financial acumen insulate these affluent women from divorce-related financial hardships. 73% of the divorced millionaire women they talk to say they are knowledgeable or very knowledgeable about investments, and 77% say they are much better off emotionally since the divorce. But it is changing in general, too, and a Pew Economic Mobility Project uh, study looked in January 2012 at... Average people, average couples who are divorcing and found that 20% of women are going to see gains of more than 25% in income after a divorce, a figure that's doubled nearly in 20 years. And for just average women in general, regardless, again, of your marital status, there are a ton of resources out there geared towards financial literacy for women. Now, Funnily enough, or not so funnily enough, a lot of them are, you know, you kind of have to, uh, I, I don't know, uh, deal with a lot of uh, pink and feminine puns. There's some cringeworthy names. Like sittingpretty.org, girls just want to have funds.com, go girl finance, lots of spunky, sassy things. Uh, there was also an article in the New York Times by Sarah Siegel Bernard, who's a personal finance writer over there, and she was looking at this kind of newer brand of financial advice by women for women and some of the titles, the books that she tossed out were Shoo, Jimmy Choo, Hot Broke Mess, A Purse of Your Own. But she looked at them and she was like, listen, the, you know, you kind of have to endure some really bad puns and some comparisons of, you know, bank accounts to little black dresses. I don't know. But there are some, you know, they, they have good advice mm-hmm. for women. But there are also arguments that, you know, we don't, we don't need gendered financial advice. Right. We just need to, we just need to do it. Well, there are some, like I know here in Atlanta, um, there are some colleges and universities that offer continuing education courses or professional development courses that have a lot to do with financial literacy and things like that. So, I mean, yes, you could read a book that has a terrible title or you could go take a continuing education class or, you know, talk to a financial planner or financial advisor. So your your options are are many. Yeah. And it's um, just one more point on that. It's interesting that you say say talk to a financial planner because um, in sort of figuring out how to get women more invested in personal finance, um, some experts have said that women want a more personal approach, whereas, you know, men will walk in and they just want to hear numbers, 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 ah. whereas women just want to talk about 
you know, what does the 401k really mean? Yeah. If no. they were a sweater, <laughs> what would it look like? I mean, I, I, I joke, but uh, speaking to USA Today, Eleanor Blaley, who's uh, the co-founder of a financial education firm, uh, told USA Today that personal finance is, quote, a male-dominated field. The vocabulary, the way we measure it, present it. It's a language that has always been spoken by men and to men. And so it misses some fundamental truths about women and the way they think and make decisions. Mm -hmm. And obviously, you know, like firms, like banks, financial firms, uh, financial advisors who are writing books with titles like Shoe Jimmy Choo are clearly trying to fill this Need Right. I actually, I really, I'm thinking about taking one of those classes. I think I need to join you. Because, I mean, I hate to say it, because it's, you know, but I mean, our parents aren't going to be around forever to answer questions. Right. And while my dad's financial advisor is this incredible guy who on cold, blustery days wears a hat reminiscent of Indiana Jones, you know, I, I need to know some of these things on my own. You can buy a hat like that, too. I can, and I will get looks, and that's fine. Because your checkbook will be balanced. <laughs> That's right. You know, I mean, I feel like I have a good basic foundation of financial knowledge, but I certainly do not ever want to find myself in a situation where I am getting divorced or I'm in some sort of life upheaval and I don't even understand how to handle the finances of the situation. And the fact of the matter is, you know, if we keep podcasting, <laughs> we're probably not going to have a lot of money to work with. Unless you want to send us a personal check. Exactly. Actually, don't. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, I mean, now now it's time to, to turn it over to listeners. I, I mean, I feel like a lot of this podcast has just been throwing numbers at women saying, look at what we're not doing. But I hope that it is an empowering message to you know join me and Caroline as we educate ourselves about finances. Right. Because there, I mean, when you do think about it, I, I do think there is that gender gap in, you know, women spending versus men saving. And we all need to get better control of our monies. Absolutely. So with that, send us your thoughts. Momstuff at discovery.com. You can also find us on Facebook as well. If you want to leave a message over there. Uh, but Caroline, let's take a quick break. And then we will get to a couple of those messages. Back to our letters. I have one here from Candace about our boy band episode, and she is super stoked. She says, I almost squealed for joy when I saw that you'd done a show on boy bands because that's a topic that I was going to suggest to you. I grew up listening to Boys to Men and All for One. And when I got into middle school, the Backstreet Boys and NSYNC were pretty much always on rotation in my CD player. What's a CD player? <laughs> the Backstreet Boys weren't only my first concert. They were my first three. I saw The Wanted perform last summer, and I'm currently trying to write a novel about a boy band going on a reunion tour, so I don't think I've quite left my boy band fangirling behind. She says, you did a great job in summarizing the history of boy bands and the nuances of them. I even learned something that I didn't know before, that Ricky Martin beat out Howie Duro from BSB for a spot in Menudo. Howie is my favorite, and I feel like I should have known that fact. Howie's her favorite? That's rare. That is rare. Brian was always the the popular one among my girlfriends at the time. <laughs> so thank you, Candace. Um, someone also wrote in about boy bands mentioning how uh, we did not give any props to the Beach Boys. Oh, yeah. In our history of boy bands. Well, props to the Beach Boys. <laughs> Beach Boys are awesome. That's a boy band that I actually do listen to regularly still. 
says your 98-year-old <laughs> podcaster. Uh, I've got another one here from Jenny about boy bands, and she writes, Hello! Just wanted to say how much I enjoyed your boy bands podcast. Where I live in Leeds in England, there is a One Direction pop-up shop that opened up about three weeks ago. I see a lot of teenage girls running around town carrying posters of their favorite band member. I think it's quite funny. When I was growing up in the 90s, the big band was Take That. I really hated them, although I now realize I know most of the song lyrics because friends played them. I did quite like the Backstreet Boys and East 17, however. I don't know East 17. Never heard of it. Huh. Them. She said, I also noticed that the boy band's songs have very clear words, and maybe that's part of the appeal so that fans can sing along. And I have a feeling that it's probably true. So, thanks everyone who's written into MomStuff at Discovery.com. You should also head over to our Facebook, see what we're up to over there, and like us while you're at it. You can follow us on Twitter, at MomStuffPodcast, and you should absolutely watch us now. Stuff Mom Never Told You is on YouTube. Just go to YouTube.com slash Stuff Mom Never Told You, and while you're at it, check out what some of our fellow podcasters are up to as well on YouTube, such as... The super popular science podcast, Stuff to Blow Your Mind, they are at youtube.com slash mindstuffshow. So, plenty to do to keep you busy. And in the meantime, if you want to read up on what else we're doing, you can always go to our website. It's howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 